Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, as always, the wonderful, the ebullient, ebullient, that's a word, isn't it? I think it's a good word. Uh, Teos Avedia. Hey, Teos. <laughs> Hi, Sean. How are you doing? How was your weekend? I, I, was dude, it ebullient? Dude, I'm using words like ebullient, which I don't <laughs> even know if they're a word or what they mean. So that's where I'm at today. It means horse's butt. What? Yes. That's cheerful and yes. full of energy. So that was well it used. It probably Good does. Job. But you know who aren't horse's butts? Our listeners. That's true. Our listeners are awesome. And <laughs> we are. have some that have been talking to us. Um, some of them are talking specifically about fate. Mm. And later in the episode for our main segment, we are going to talk to the one and the only Mike Olson, who worked on the Fate Core book, as well as several other Fate products. And he is going to tell us his take on Fate, what it means to play Fate versus play D&D, and give us some more background information on that. His name's on the cover. Really cool. It's true. And we have a great question this week from our listener corner. Tim Kreider via Patreon asked this great question. I've been curious about why each of you have shown some reluctance to refer to one D&D by its creator's chosen name for it. Months into the playtest, I still hear you sometimes say 6E or 5.5E or whatever. I found it odd from two people who are generally respectful, precise speakers. Is this a deliberate choice? And if so, why? Or if this is an unintended pattern, why do you think you have trouble simply saying one D&D? And thank you for pointing this out, Tim, because this is a great question. Uh, if I have come across as being disrespectful toward the efforts of the design team, then I really do need to apologize because I have nothing but respect for those designers. Some of them I know personally, some of them I know and respect from their past work. So I don't want to be disrespectful in any way. Teos, I don't want to speak for you here. Do, how, do you have any thing to add i do not hate all living things no uh, you're you're spot on uh it's not okay. meant as disrespect um uh and i do have uh explanations for at least for my take but i want to hear yours sean okay so the reason i switch back and forth is because i've been through so many edition changes that what a company wants it to be called and what it will end up being called is really up to the fans. It's up to the the people who are consuming it. And so when I say these things, I don't say them out of disrespect. I'm not doing it purposefully to say, haha, you want to call it one D&D and I'm never going to call it one D&D. The reason I do it is because it is going to be called what it's going to be called. And what it is going to end up being called in the end will depend on what exactly its relationship is to the previous edition. So if it ends up being a version of fifth edition with some minor tweaks, it will be called 5.5. That's really what's going to happen no matter what they market it as, because that's what it's going to be seen yeah. as. If it's a completely different edition, it's going to be called sixth edition. Because here's what a conversation will play out as. Hey, says player one, I'm going to put together a new D&D campaign. Do you want to join? And the person two is going to say, absolutely. What edition are you playing? 
I haven't, I never played any of the previous editions, but I, I did play 5e. And so person one will say, well, we're using the new edition. And person two will say, well, is it much different than 5e? Will it be hard to learn? And the person will say, no, it's basically just like 5e with a few tweaks. It's basically 5.5, <laughs> right? And so then it will be known, therefore, as 5.5. Or if it's very different, that conversation will say, well, person says, will it be hard to learn? And the, the DM will say, well... If you know five point, if you know fifth edition, you know the basics. But there are quite a bit of changes, so it's basically like sixty. <laughs> right, that's mm-hmm. how it's going to be referred to because of what it ends up being. Yeah, and if I can add to that, it was interesting when D and D Next was used as the placeholder name, which my understanding is one D is also a placeholder name, right? It's not even the final name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the intention at the D&D, you know, at Wizards of the Coast was that the name of the edition would be Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And there would be no number used. And for a good number of months, they worked really hard to not say 5e anywhere, right? And, and they would instruct uh, freelancers, anyone working with them, don't say 5e. And what did they end up all doing? Saying 5e, because they couldn't. It, it was impossible to not refer to it the way we refer to editions of, of any game. And it's true of you know, Shadowrun or anything else, when it's got a second edition or a third edition, it's a thing you've got to use to refer to it, to mention it. Uh, and we will have to have some contrast between fifth edition as we know it, the 2014 version, and this new version, which is clearly has substantial changes to it. Are those a 0.5? Are there a 60? It's hard to say. Um, we've called it often, or at least I've called it often 6E because it felt to me like it was going to go towards 6E territory. There were such substantial changes being talked about that it didn't feel like it was going to be 5th edition. And I could argue that even books like Tasha's are already like getting into a 0.5 type approach. So you go beyond that, you're really at 6E where, where everybody's buying new books anyway and you, you just kind of forget about the old stuff. Now, yeah. D&D has said recently, we are going to make sure this is backwards compatible. And, and even said, you know, in our interview with Kyle Brink, he, he said, uh, I'm, you know, it's a 0.5. So, okay, mm-hmm. it's 5.5 then. You know, maybe it's not 6E, it's right. more 0.5. Uh, right. That may still mean we're all buying new books, by the way. But, right. but it becomes that. And, and 1D&D to me also, I, I do have a little bit of a sarcasm in me. And 1D&D to me is the promise that we will have one edition till the end of time. Mm-hmm. And I can almost guarantee, I would take a large bet that that will not be the case. And so for me, using the term 1D is, 1D&D is almost disingenuous marketing that I don't even think the company is going to end up believing. Just like the idea of calling 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, I knew would never last. I don't think mm-hmm. 1D&D, this concept of a single edition that you can just make changes to, like it's a video game you're patching, we will end up with a 6E, if not now, in the future. And so. It has an edition number, but yeah, it's not meant that's to a disrespect. Great point. It's just, yeah, that, that's a great point. Even like, like Taya said, even with, with, in that interview, Kyle himself said it's a five point, it's a point five. Mm-hmm. So right, right there, we're, we're seeing them using terminology. They probably don't want to use, but they need to use it to clarify. And I, also I there's com- just the, the syllables. <laughs> yeah. I had a conversation once with a designer where I, I called it sexy and they said, you know, that's not the right term. And I'm like, oh, what is the right term? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. I thought that was great, right. right? This person working for the company, because it's like, well, yeah, I don't know. Well, we're going to figure it out, you know? Right. So until they figure it out, we will try to use 1D&D, but it may come out as 
for now, I'm happy calling it one D&D because that's what it is. But in conversations where we're talking about the future, I will probably continue to say 5.5 or 60 or whatever, because we don't know what it is going mm-hmm. to be called. Yeah. But thank you. A great question. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it really was a great question and helps us clarify uh, what we think. And there is another question here. Um, What do you think the idea of taking a base race lineage and then any sub race lineage? For example, take elf with the Lightfoot halfling sub race lineage. Uh, This is Chappy Thoughts via Mastodon. Deus, the, you start this. Well, time. The, this makes me think immediately of the what Cold Press is doing with uh, with their playtest, where if I understand it correctly, you you can do that. You can be, you know, a, a dwarf, and then you can take some elf sub feature, uh, sub race feature to distinguish yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't love it personally. I feel like that's not the way to break up tropes. Because now we're just confusing things. Um, and, and I do like iconic concepts and breaking tropes all at the same time. I sort of like the idea of dwarves being dour as a thing and then saying, but each dwarf is different, you know, and even dwarf cultures are different. So this is a concept to keep in mind, but it's not the only concept and it's not the reality on the ground of every dwarf you meet. The answer to that is not to me take, you know, the elven weapon training or whatever it is, you know, because now now it's it's sort of unless what you're saying is I grew up with elves. okay, fine. But I'd I'd rather tackle it a a different way mechanically, um, organizationally than that, I guess. What do you think, Sean? Yeah. Yeah, I I think we've probably talked about it a lot, but we have two separate things going on here. We have trying to make the mechanics simpler to learn and to utilize by packaging traits and abilities by different categories. Class is one of those categories. Subclass is one of those categories. Race turns out to be one of those categories or has been. And people, some people do like to have that history in their setting where elves are just good at this. Could be you know, because of who they are, it could be because of how they grew up, it could be nature, could be nurture, whatever. They want that sort of firm grip on the setting and what what it means to be a certain type of creature. And then there are the people that are ready to chuck that whole thing for obvious reasons, because we see it used in the real world in a negative way. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what you want in your game. I am ready to chuck the whole system and stop trying to make it work without keep without carrying the baggage forward and just say, let's let's make a new way to build your character. Let's make it easier to do. Let's make it quicker. Let's make it less confusing. Let's stop tying it to the past. Problematic or not, let's stop tying it to the past and let's figure out a way to make it work moving forward. So I think it's fine to do that game mechanically uh but like as teo said it's just sort of punting this problem down the road rather than fixing it once and for all and it may also create problems at your table where you are it's sort of confusing what you're playing Mm -hmm. you almost need to have the picture in front of your you know on a little tent in order to really know because 
whatever everybody's using is can just be from all over the place, then you you don't know who anybody is. So yeah, it's it's these are tough things that I think we're all trying to figure out. And I think your idea shines a good one, which maybe it needs to be reimagined from the ground up, which is what you do more in a six E than a five point five. See how I tied that together. True, true story. True story. All <laughs> right, so seven E will do it. Yeah, 70, all these problems will be fixed, but there will be a whole bunch of new problems uh, thrown in. Well, thank you, uh, Chappy Thoughts, for for that question. And now we will get into our news and commentary section with a lot of juicy stuff happening this week, including D&D updating the progress and the events on a new community update page. This page went up on D&D Beyond a few days ago, and it promises to provide community updates this first update covers January through March of 2023. So it's sort of a project checklist for what they are doing. And then uh, a list of events that they plan to be at in 2023. Do you want to cover the columns that this event or this progress checklist has? Yeah, it's it's a done, in progress, and upcoming, which, um, and, and then under them are, are different, you know, Type. So done is the SRD is in the Creative Commons. Four playtest pocket packets are released and three surveys are collected. Um, and then in progress is to, and this is kind of neat because it's something that was mentioned when we uh, interviewed Kyle Brink, where I said, hey, can we get the, the basic rules in, in Spanish? Uh, and he said that, well, we're going to have something like that. And here it is. Localize the SRD 5.1 in French, Italian, German and Spanish. And that's not quite the basic rules, right? But it, I guess anybody could make basic rules out of them, sort of, pretty close. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they're going to also review previous editions, as they've said, for inclusion in Creative Commons. They're going to publish there. And, and now the phrasing of this is, is a little different. You know, the Wizards of the Coast internal content policy for D&D products. So they're not telling us what we must do. They're now saying, here's what Wizards is doing so that you can use this as a guide as well. Um, and then the last one is update the D&D core rules, which I thought was sort of interesting phrasing because I, I think, well, aren't you just creating one D&D? But, but I think what they mean is really just the core rules. If you think of Player's Handbook, DMG, and, and Monster Manual, what they're saying is that we're going to get to play with and provide feedback on not just the Player's Handbook as we've been doing, but that we're going to start seeing DMG and MM pieces. So that'll be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and what's and in the upcoming? Yeah, just one single thing, which is ensure one D&D rules updates are compatible with 5e and the SRD. And that's very interesting to see that emphasis. It's almost as if, and it's a weird chart a little bit because it's like, obviously this is not the only thing the company's working on, right? But like, this is the one thing that they've added there, which is, I guess, to underscore its importance to the community. Yeah, uh, that was the most interesting thing to me. Actually, that's not true. What the most interesting thing was to me was what's next, which is the 2023 community events. Uh, so we get a list of events with dates, a description, and where they're happening. And you know, you and I have always talked about Wizards of the Coast needs to get out into the the community more. They need to, you know, put their developers out there, their designers mm -hmm. out there, just. You know, so for everyone's good, for the designer's good, for the community's good. So yeah, everything is is understood. And we know that these are actual people who are making this and not some massive evil overlord company uh, doing it. 
And it seems like they may have been listening because they put a lot of events on here. There's a D&D Direct event, which is online happening in March, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen any news about yet. It's and if it's happening yeah. in March, they have about two weeks. Uh, <laughs> there is a Learn to Play program called Your Adventure Begins that is coming April 6th through 9th in Wizards Play Network stores. And they, they used to do store events for, well, they used to do... <laughs> the indie encounters uh right. so i i was very excited about this to, to see this uh what Absolutely. else have they put on the events list so there's a dm camp where stores will receive kits to teach players how to dm that's going to come out in the summer awesome and then family friendly build a community together join your local game store for kits for family play so this is a kid oriented you know the whole family with your kids uh building somehow doing something around D with that that's really cool that'll be in the fall of this year and then there's the giant list of conventions and it includes your typical things like gen con but it also has like uk games expo and big bad con so some different names there game hole um and i'm curious you know how this comes across because there are a lot of conventions that wizards staff attend but they don't necessarily do it in an accessible manner, right? And when I really think of what's made a difference to to gamers, to the community, is not when you see them up on a podium, but when they are at a table unexpectedly with five other players who are like, oh, wow, I'm playing a game with Chris Parkins, right? Oh, wow, I'm playing a game with, you know, whoever. Uh, that is what, you know, everybody sees that and goes, wow, they're playing the game like we play the game. And that's really neat, right? I mean, I know for me, it was very great. I got to DM Chris Perkins one time at Winter Fantasy, and that was great to see him as a player and see what a good player he was, was really cool. And everybody at the table just, you know, was so happy to have that experience. Uh, And at other tables were other people. In fact, they were even playtesting things for the next edition when they did that. And and that was very cool to see them playtest classes nobody had seen before. Uh, It was excellent. And so that was exciting. What's not on this list is this content creator summit, which saw a lot of discussion on Twitter. And we're going to talk about in just a few seconds. But first, we want to get to the release of Honor Among Thieves in preview at South by Southwest to mostly glowing reviews. I read the headlines. I want to enjoy the movie as it is, so I did not read any reviews. I generally don't read reviews of movies anyway, because who are you to tell me what I like or don't like or what movie is going to be good or bad? Because I'm going to figure it out for myself. Well, I can uh, tell you, you don't like reading reviews. This is true. You you do, you do know me very well. It's almost <laughs> like I just said it. Uh, so what, what did you take away from the reviews and, and what you read of them? So I did read all the reviews. Um but uh, I, I, it was kind of amazing how good all these reviews were. At first, I just saw some links on Twitter and I said, I don't know who these people are, whatever, uh, you know, some things. But apparently what happened is that at South by Southwest, um, there is a secret showing where you just sign up to go see a movie to review and experience. And it was the Dungeons and Dragons movie. And people coming out of this whether they are very established reviewers or or not, are saying really good things about it. And these are people who didn't go to see a Dungeons & Dragons movie, right? It was dropped on them unexpectedly. And they're like, wow, this is a ton of fun. I really had a great time. 
Um, they underscored that the characters work well, the CGI works reasonably well, and in some places glowing whitely well. Um, the the story has heart, um, and it feels you know a lot of like like a Guardians of the Galaxy film, which is what we were told at the very beginning it was going to be like. It has that kind of fun to it um, while having. Yeah, good story, good heart to it. So there are some reviews here you can look at in our show notes. Um, those are awesome. But then you may get to see it a little early, Sean. You might. I just saw on Amazon that they have a special early showing on March 19th at 2 p.m. in select theaters. You have to do it through Amazon Prime. And thank you to Dave Rosser for originally putting this out on the Internet. Yeah. Um I was so excited because there is a couple theaters within an easy, well, an hour drive of me that I could have gotten to, but I won't be available Sunday at 2 p.m. for family reasons. So I'm not going to get to the early show. So, Teos, we're going to have to wait an extra week to review the movie. Well, I am going to see this. Uh, I am not an Amazon Prime member and don't believe in that, but... Uh... You know, anytime you buy something, they do ask you to please join their their fundraiser. Uh, so I uh, I did order a book and uh, I signed up for the free prime so I could get this show and get a tickets to it because I'm going to go see this. And I can't believe it's six days from now I'm seeing this movie. That's that's absurd. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm excited to see it. And, and hopefully it's so good that I want to see it again and again with with my gaming buddies and stuff. But I'm going to go with my son and wife to go see it and see what they all think about it so i'm gonna not spoil it next time we record that's right you'll have to wait a week but if you want to hear more about the heroes of this movie you can get their stat blocks on DD beyond in the thieves gallery movie heroes become npcs you can get a free set of stat blocks that reflect the characters in the movie doric uh, edgen holga simon zank forge uh Sophina, a red wizard, including art for all of the actors, you know, in character. The door to see that block does say that she can turn into an owl bear. Uh, so <laughs> it's it says right at the top of the article, you know, these stat blocks take a little liberty with the rules in some places, uh, and that's to reflect the something about the character. And I'm cool with that. I yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's I a movie. Care less. It doesn't have yeah. to be 100 perfect. It's exactly, exactly. So, uh, did you have any thoughts about them, or just it was I mean, cool? They, they, you know, they're a little spoilerish in some ways, but you know, it all depends on how you view spoilers and how much you want to, you know, walk in completely fresh or not. Uh, there's their monster stat blocks, and to me, that always says that you're taking a liberty with things to just explain how it feels but i think they've done a really good job of designing these to be to feel like characters or npc stat blocks you know and, and be interesting that's cool so yeah mm -hmm. nice uh, smart thing to do this is the kind of thing that if they weren't doing i would say why aren't they doing this right and so yeah. it's nice to see all these tie-ins happening i mean we don't really have it in the news here but I, i'm seeing you know chocolate bars that are DD chocolate bars it's almost baloney it's not quite good try um and it's not mass market but uh but you can have uh action figures right are, are showing up in in many permutations through various different licensing deals and that's the kind of stuff that DD needs if they're going to hit the the larger goals they have right so that's good stuff to see 
In other news, for the first time ever, a D&D book has been a finalist for the Nebula Award for game writing. What book was it? Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. It's been named a finalist for this year's award. Other nominees are video games, Elden Ring, Horizon Forbidden West, Pentiment, Stray, and Vampire the Masquerade, Sins of the Sirens. This is the first D&D product that has received such a nomination, and the award ceremony is in Anaheim, California on May 14th. Great. Congratulations to everybody working on that book. That's neat. For sure. Yep. And now let's get to this creator summit that we mentioned earlier. Uh, So several content creators who cover role-playing game content via Twitch or YouTube have started announcing uh, within the past few days that they were invited to a content creator summit at Wizards of the Coast headquarters in Seattle. And as you might expect, in the drama that is the internet, this became a controversial thing. Anger, name-calling, lots of FOMO, a lot more. There's so much to discuss. I feel like we could almost have a whole show on just discussing this. Yeah. But Teos... The rumor has it, and by rumor, I mean you basically said so, that you are one of these uh, invitees, and you talked a lot about it uh, on your blog. Yeah, yeah, I, I did blog about it. I, I, you know, a couple of days went by, and I didn't say anything, and, and I know some other people who are just not saying that they're going, um, which is probably the safest choice, but but you know me, I like to stick my foot in it, and and one of the things I wanted to do is just sort of, I don't know, try to at least give a historical perspective to this because I've been to an event that's a little bit similar that you were invited to, uh, but, but you couldn't attend, um, which was back when they, before they had announced 5e and D and D next, uh, they held an organized play, uh, summit, you might call it, uh, at wizards of the coast. And they invited a number of people and then they surprise revealed, Hey, this is actually after we'd signed our, you know, NDAs, Hey, you're actually here to hear about that. We're going to launch a new edition, uh, not 5e, they didn't call it, but you know, a new edition of the game and you get to play test it and all these kinds of things. And, you know, when you look at who attended, it was sort of similar in that it was a lot of bloggers and people who were known online, um, though, and, and this may just easily be the way it was back then. Those people were also people who had a very long kind of history of interacting with D&D and, and knowing D&D and its programs. So we actually did, you know, talk about things like organized play programs and everybody was able to participate because they all understood these concepts, right? And, and really understood the, the company of Wizards, the, the, the brand of D&D, the game of D&D, all of it. Um, so I think this event is something like that. The, the term content creator has thrown people off. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for a lot of people, it, it depends where you, you sit, right? If you are in in, in, um, in live play kind of things and streaming, that's what you think is content. If you are an RPG writer, content is words. It's PDFs or it's hardbacks, right? And, it, and so when you hear the word used in a different way, it can really trip you up. And so I think a lot of people who design RPGs heard the term content creator summit and said, wait a minute. Why am I seeing people who are uh, influencers, as I might call it? And in fact, influencer is a name that it looks like D&D is trying to use less and actually call it instead content creators. Um, 
And, and so that brings up, you know, I think brought up a lot of this tension was around the idea of what is Wizards trying to do, uh, especially post OGL, who is being invited and why and, and, and that kind of thing. What do you think, John? I think that's that's one aspect of it that can be chalked up pretty quickly to just terminology. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. They, they, they want influencers there to see what they're doing so those influencers can go back and talk to their communities and get the lowdown on what's happening. And obviously Wizards feels that if these influencers, many of whom were critical of them during the open gaming license fiasco, can just see that these are people who love D&D, working on D&D, and this is how Wizards operates, and it's not an evil empire. It's a bunch of gamers you know who who like the game and who want the game to succeed working on their passion yeah if they can see that that's will be the gist that gets back to the influencers audience and that's fine right wizards has been doing it for years it's not necessarily in this way but they've had at gen con they would have media days where they would mm-hmm. run games for media members it didn't wasn't at the wizards of the coast headquarters it was at gen con but same thing they've they've done this forever it's just since it's being done in a heightened media presence of this open gaming license stuff uh putting D in the news in a bad way so now they need to try to get that uh that narrative flipped the then the blowback against the influencers <laughs> came from not D&D content game creators, but just from people in general saying, oh, if you go, you're a sellout. If you mm-hmm. go, what about your journalistic integrity? Mm-hmm. Uh, these people aren't journalists. But let's let's not, let's not uh, mince any words there. Journalists are held to a certain standard. Mm-hmm. The, the, the freaking constitution and the declaration of independence, (laughs) right? Talk about the freedom of the press and the press means something. The press doesn't mean people standing on the streets yelling, right? The the press has its own special place in, in the world, in history, in society. Mm -hmm. Influencers are not journalists and that's not to denigrate anything that they do, Right. right? They're entertainers. They do provide information, but journalism has with it a, a, a weight. And, and you and I have, that, have said this. There have been times that someone has said to us in a comment and they've used the word journalist with us. And it's like, no, I know we share news, but right. we're not journalists, right? We do not yeah. go through all of that training. We don't abide by those principles. Like it's really very right. different, right? Right. And even if we have gone through that training, there comes with it that a process and we do not follow a journalistic process at all in any way, shape, or form, right? We throw our opinions in. We laugh about it. We we will take rumors and talk about them. We choose which aspects of a story to cover. It, exactly. Right? Um, so I doubt that any of these people who who are going are journalists by not by you know training. Maybe they are, but by what they do. So to say that they're ruining their journalistic integrity, uh, no, they're not. They're doing exactly what it is that they are there to do, which is do stuff that is cool content, get information, provide it in the way that they 
best want to get that content across to whoever their audience is. Um, it's not right. It's not wrong. They just, that's their role. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, understand that. And I'm fine with everyone who's going, anyone who's going, it's, it's all good. And, and I think there's, there's two parts to this, right? There's that as an individual who is attending, uh, who may or may not identify themselves as an influencer or a journalist or any of these things, you know, that individual is going there uh, for, for any number of reasons, right? To know more uh, so they can be more in the know, to share information with the people who subscribe to them or follow them or whatever it may be. Uh, they may be going there hoping to change Wizard's mind on some issue that they consider to be important, which could be entirely different from another issue that someone else wants to press, right? Um, th there is no standard for that. Everybody can be all over the place in this. And then Wizards from the other side is hoping all these folks come in here and, and, and provide some measure of feedback, right? They want to take the temperature of everybody who's there. What, are, what kind of things are people asking? But that doesn't mean Wizards is there looking to immediately do things with whatever is, is shown to them, right? Um, they're going to listen. They're going to uh, make note of the big major issues. And, but, but they're at the same time, like you said, Sean, trying to then provide their, their take on things and, and, and try to win people over to that aspect. And that was certainly something that happened way back when. It was, it was maybe not to the... Well, actually, no, I would say... It was just as critical as this one was because I, it, you know, things that have been talked about. I have to be careful because we were under NDA then, um, and it's probably worth talking mm -hmm. about that contrast. But uh, being under NDA, mm -hmm. I took copious notes there because I love these kinds of things and, and I'm fascinated by by RPG history. So I made lots of notes, and I can't share any of those because I'm under NDA on it. I don't think the NDA expired. I'd have to check. Uh, but I can look at what other people wrote, and so like you know, Critical Hits wrote about that event. I linked to that in my blog. And, and one of the things they said is, you know, how important this meeting was to D&D &D because of what Paizo was doing at that time, because of how 4E sales were going and, and all these numerous issues. So it was exceedingly important for Wizards to have that meeting back then and try to explain, mm -hmm. hey, here is this. And it came out clearly. We left that meeting going, they are passionate about this new edition they're creating. And it's neat. It's different. It's innovative they're really trying things and so we all came out with a very positive impression will we feel that way at the end of this one who knows you know but that it makes sense for wizards to try to do this right i mean that's and mm -hmm. and the best scenario is that they can honestly say to us why these things they're doing are so awesome and we can mm -hmm. come back and report on that because we all want it to be awesome unless you're just in the business of hating a company in which case well so be it but you know that's that's what we're here to do and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say when you come back. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say one more thing, Sean, which is the NDA aspect is very interesting to me. Um, yeah. NDAs are not being used this time, which is why we ended up with all this tension online, right? It's because one of the people who got a letter said, hey, look, you won't believe the you know letter that I got. And, and so what? I didn't get a letter, right? And, and so it creates mm -hmm. that tension because we're all talking about it beforehand. Um, and, and I... I think it's all very unfortunate and I bet wizards chose not to use an NDA because of the leaks. They have to just assume that as with the OGL, anything that would happen is going to get reported on. So they're not going to use an NDA at all. 
But what that also means is now we really know, like it's all, you know, you can only, Wizards is only going to share the things they want repeated. Right. And even each other they're attending, the attendees have to only share what they don't mind someone else repeating. Right. So like, let's say I want to really turn the screws on some issue. I have to think about whether I want someone talking about that. And that's mm-hmm. unfortunate because that's what I love about NDAs is NDAs right. let wizards talk to us about things that never came to be. Right. And we could give them very honest and pointed feedback, respectful, but pointed, mm-hmm. and they could mm-hmm. then take that into account. Right. right. But it's going to be a little different this time. And so I hope it doesn't yeah. erode the benefits of the event because of that. Well, it's it's it goes back to D and D being the game itself being a creative process, mm. right? And that's exactly what and you know people can say I hate NDAs, NDAs are the devil. Well, what Teos is exactly right. What NDAs allow you to do is do something different, do something radical, and not worry about consequences for for trying that. And it it is sad that everything that the people at this content summit content creator summit will see are things that everyone's going to see two days later. Um, and they won't be able to get down into some of the more complex uh, rules, but also complex conversations that surround D and D as a game, D and D as a hobby and where D and D fits into our world. Um, it's it's not going to elicit the kind of feedback that they might need to hear that you could give more explicitly under an NDA. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, we will be reporting more on, I'm sure, as uh, time passes and the summit happens. When is that summit again? It's the third. It's the third, so it's the beginning of the month. Okay, it's the third of, of April. April. Yeah. Okay, so it's, I, uh, it's coming up soon. Okay. I'm trying to juggle all my dates in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us didn't get invitations, so we don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just saying. <laughs> I am so glad I was not invited. <laughs> I, you know, and, and and that's another thing is that if you weren't invited, like it can be for any reason. There, there's so many reasons why someone might be invited and not someone else and and, and it might be it feels so comparable or that you you know have more viewers or, or reach or whatever but mm-hmm. there there's so many vagaries of why one person is chosen to not and and i'd say to everybody do not take it personally i've been left out of so many things and i will be left of, out of so many things in the future and everybody's gonna you know if, if you're around long enough you'll get to, into some and you'll not get into others and it's not always logic it's definitely yeah. not a, a thing that you should take personally and, and feel bad about. Very true. Uh, there are three Kickstarters that we want to talk about. The first is the Acquisitions Incorporated Series 2, which is kickstarting right now. They are looking to create a 10-episode series that looks at, if I remember correctly, the current situation within Ac Inc., after the end of the last live play where everything sort of went back to a reset, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, they've had some time travel play and then some interesting things. And so uh, 
this is uh, kind of taking you back to the start, but with some teachings from what happened, almost like you get to redo it and, and try it a different way. So we'll see how that goes. Um, they are closing in on their goal, not quite there yet. So if, if you love Ack Inc., uh, please take a look and try to help out. There's probably by the time you listen to this, something like 24, 25 days left uh, to back mm -hmm. it. So you got a little bit of time there. Yep. And the Forge of Foes Kickstarter is continuing. Uh, Teos was one of the primaries on that, along with Scott Fitzgerald Gray and Mr. Michael Shea. And so get, get in on that if you can. A lot of cool stuff coming from three great minds. Thank you. Thank and you. also Teos. <laughs> and thank you so much. Uh, the Grim Hollow Valakin Clans Kickstarter, which I worked on with Ghostfire Games, is ending Friday night at midnight. So you have just a couple of days to get in on that if you so choose. I definitely appreciate the support. The link is in the show notes. So if you've got our show notes, just click on that link. And, and in fact, we'll put the link in the YouTube video so you can get to these because uh, you, you, you don't have time. You got to click. Yeah. Got to click quick. And now we will have our talk about fate with Mike Olson. Hello and welcome back. We are now on to our main topic today, which is looking at other role-playing games and comparing them to D&D. And we are very fortunate to be joined by Mike Olson, who will talk to us about fate, which is what we started on last week, but want to continue the discussion with today. So first of all, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So last week we talked about the basics of fate, but before we get into a little deeper dive, we want to know more about you. What's your role in fate and what's your role in the role-playing game industry? Well, uh, gosh, um... I discovered fate in 2006 with spirit of the century when there wasn't like fate so much as a separate thing. It was just spirit of the century and you hacked the spirit of the century to do things. But, um, and I'd been a diehard, I still am a diehard like champions hero, uh, guy before that. And, uh, cause I loved, it was very satisfying working with the numbers and getting things just right. And, like little tweaks here and there and tinkers. And, and then I found fate and it was like, you could do that with words instead of numbers and fate. And it like blew my mind and I was just immediately got super into it. Um, and uh, like the, after the first time I played it, I was like, that was great. You know what else was, this would work well for is this other genre. And then I just started hacking it for other genres and bringing it to uh, conventions in LA to Strategicon. And um, there I found uh, the late great Morgan Ellis, who was doing the same thing at the same time, also discovered it and also was hacking it for between like planetary romance and 17th century swashbuckling and just like, you know, uh, post APOC stuff and just everything. We're just both of us hacking for everything. So that's how we met. And we, you know, played in each other's games and stuff. And um, then I started a blog called spirit of the blank because back then everything was spirit of the something. Yeah. Because that's how you hacked it. Cause there was no fate as a separate thing. So, um, so there's spirit of the 17th century. I did a Futurama game that was spirit of the 31st century and, you know, like <laughs> on and on like that. Um, so spirit of the blank was my blog to like, just do every kind of, put everything, every thought I had down there. And I had that blog for not know, maybe a year. And then, um, I got contacted by Chris Birch and Sarah Newton at cubicle seven. They had made star blazer, which was the first, 
uh, like fate game after spirit of the century, again, before fate was a separate product, like it didn't even exist as its own thing. Um, but they made the first other game off of that. That was a sci-fi game. And then they wanted to make the fantasy version of that because star Blazers was a comic book series. And some of those comics were uh, fantasy oriented. So that they were making legends of Anglaire, which was the fantasy treatment of star blazer. And they found my blog and they asked if I want to be part of it. And I said, yes, of course. Um, and then when I, then I saw in their document, they already had some posts from my blog in there. So it's a good thing I said, yes. Um, cause <laughs> they were that, committed. Wow. That's um, <laughs> so, uh, that was a very interesting first freelancer experience. Cause, uh, like I did all the things wrong that you should do. Like, I didn't know what I was getting paid. I didn't know my per word rate until after I was holding the book in my hands. Um, but uh, it was a great experience still to just to get to work on, you know, something. And then I, I kept hacking fate and then I hacked it. I really want to do superheroes. That was like my, my, uh, Holy grail of fate. So I did a hack for that and I was running that at conventions. And then um, I got contacted by Arc Dream. They wanted to do another, a fate edition of the Kerberos Club, um, which is a really, really cool setting by uh, Benjamin Baugh, which like you absolutely must see. It's like hmm. super powered weirdos in Victorian England. It's the best way I can put it. It's not a superhero game, but it's like people with powers uh-huh. and they're weird. Um, and so I made a whole new version of Fate for that that we called Strange Fate. And uh, it was very, very customizable, even more so than usual Fate. But but because I'm still a hero guy, it was like like uh, um, more numerically customizable. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, so that was cool. That was a lot of fun to do that. And then uh, Brian Clevenger, who writes Atomic Robo, he contacted me because he saw Strange Fate and he said, I was able to make Atomic Robo in a game for the first time. And it felt right. Like it was actually the real character. Do you want to do a role-playing game of Atomic Robo? And I was like, sure. I don't know what Atomic Robo is, but yeah, you bet. And he sent me some issues in PDF. And I saw like a page and a half. And uh, he had pitched it as Ghostbusters plus Raiders of the Lost Ark plus Buckaroo Banzai, which like, you got me a Buckaroo Banzai for sure. <laughs> sure. Um, and I was like, yes, yes, please. Let's do this. I'll do it for a penny award. Pay me on the back end. I don't care. Just like, <laughs> let me do this thing. <laughs> And so I see you we learned were, all the freelancer. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it just was so good. <laughs> I had to do it by then. Yeah, I know. No, I hadn't. Um, I only recently had really. Um, but while we were talking about that, um, Brian started talking to Fred Hicks on Twitter about Atomic Robo. And Fred Hicks from Evil Hat was like, we're big fans of Atomic Robo. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to lose this thing to Evil Hat. They're going to do it instead. <laughs> and that's not true because Fred Hicks is such a good guy. He was like, yeah, let's. Let's have Mike do it for Evil Hat. So that's how I started working for Evil Hat. And then almost simultaneous with the development. Well, yeah, actually simultaneous with the development of Atomic Robo. They started working on Fate Core, like a new actual separate edition of Fate, not Spirit of the Century or not Dresden Files, you know. And um, they asked me if I wanted to work on that. I was like, yeah, of course. That's like, you know, just being a fan of D&D and then them saying, do you want to work on the new edition of D&D? Right. Like, yeah. Amazing. So, so yeah, so that's how I got hooked up with Evil, uh, Evil Hat. And then I did a bunch of stuff for them um, and ended up being like a rules guru guy for them. And I mentored some people through their first books uh, on fate. And um, yeah, so then, uh, and then now their focus has shifted to Fortune in the Dark now. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, while, while fate was going strong, I was, uh, I was very busy with them. Um, so yeah, so that's how I get to fate. 
That's fantastic. Okay. And, and of course, you've yeah. done uh, some some D&D stuff uh, and you worked on Skull Kickers. Is that right? Yeah, I was the lead writer for Skull Kickers with uh, Jim Zub. He wanted to do a to celebrate the 10th anniversary of his creator own comic, Skull Kickers. He wanted to do a big sprawling D&D adventure. Uh, so he wrote a comic, uh, like a new one shot for of Skull Kickers. And then we did a big adventure that tied into that comic that was all in one volume called Skull Kickers, Caster Bastards and the Great Grotesque. Um, and that, that was really a lot of fun to work on. That was very cool. That's awesome. Great. Well, so anyone listening now knows exactly why we brought you on on our second Fate show, because uh, you, you're here to mock how we explain Fate. <laughs> I, I have notes. <laughs> good, good. We'll look, yeah. we'll look forward to the no. corrections part of the show. No. I'm not, um, I don't want to do that. <laughs> to, to backing up a bit, what, what is yeah. it that called you to fate? Why do you love it so much of a system? You know, what's sort of the short elevator pitch you'd give to folks as to why you think it's amazing? Well, it's right there in Fate Core, in the beginning of the book. It's about uh, competent, proactive heroes leading dramatic lives, right? Let the, like it can do any, any sort of game that involves that. If your game does not have those three things, then fate mm-hmm. is not a good fit but most games are that <laughs> so it's probably a good fit um but I, I'm, I'm seriously it was the thing with like words instead of numbers that really got to me like in hero i would take a paragraph to explain like okay this is how this power works i can uh steal someone else's power and i can use it again but only like this and like this and with these advantages and these limitations and in fate i could write an aspect that was like you know describing my power and i knew what i meant and the GM knew what I meant. So that was good enough. <laughs> like that was it. In Hero, because it gave me the tools to really, really drill down and narrow down the thing, I wanted to do that. But in Fate, it, it didn't call for that. And I didn't need to do that. And us knowing the shared knowledge of what that thing meant between the player and GM was like enough. And uh, that was very attractive to me. I liked it a lot. Um, yeah, just being able to, you know, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I have a degree in creative writing. So being able to use words instead of numbers is uh, uh, up my alley. Let's say. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because in D and D you, you get that anyway, right? You, even though the, everything's written out in very complex rules, you still a lot of times have to come to an agreement with the game master or right. between players about what things are. So that part of fate, even when I started playing, it didn't bother me all that much because we were doing that in our D and D games anyway. Right. Uh, and this just sort of cuts down on that need to parse, you know, the, the math or parse these very complex statements and just say, this is who I am. So this is what I can do. Yeah. Well, I, on a related note, um, I played in a, a technocracy uh, mage uh, game a long time ago, and I made a very specific character. I didn't know anything about the setting. I made a very specific character. He could do like these things and that's it. But to do, be able to do those things, I had to get certain dots and skills to, you know, because that's what let you do it. But if you got that many dots, you could also do these other things. And during the game, the GM was like, well, you could all you could do this, too, with that. I'm like, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I can only do these things. <laughs> I was like limiting myself for no reason. It's so frustrating for them. But um, that's the kind of thing, like with an aspect, it would very easily, like, elide all that other stuff. And I would just we know what I meant, you know. So do you look so, at all lots of other role playing uh, games? And, and say, oh, that came from fate. Oh, that, like, do you see that all the time? I mean, no, but a little. Oh. Um, I mean, some games explicitly say, like, you know, this is a combination of fate and Cortex Plus or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the inspiration mechanic in 5e, when I saw mm-hmm. it, I was like, mm-hmm. 
Mm. All right. Welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> Pretty yeah. cool. Um, so, yeah, so a little bit, but I, I don't I don't know if I mm-hmm. I, I think there is a lot of um, what's that word when people come up with the same thing at the same time independently, yeah. you know, convergent evolution or something. Sure, or, that. Yeah. I think there was a lot of that going on because the like indie games in the early 2000s were like kind of pushing in different directions. And I feel like just a lot mm. of people were influenced by the same things. And so they ended up making some things that worked a little the same. Like you mentioned, um, new, uh, Cypher System and Fate Accelerated, the way that stunts are made in Fate Accelerated and the, you know, I can do this because of that thing in, in Cypher System. Yeah. Those games came out in the same year. So neither was influenced by another, but like, you know, we were thinking along the same lines. So last week we talked about the basics of fate. Uh, without you know nitpicking too much, is there anything that that we said that was was not absolutely true, <laughs> or that you would want um, to put a spin on? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I guess um, I did write some things down. I'm not kidding. I did do a little research. Uh, if, if you're um, a creative writer and a game designer, I hope you wrote things down. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I listen um, to podcasts too. I'd say one thing about approaches in Fate Accelerated, which I love. Um, one thing to, because, well, I guess one overarching thing is that in, Fate assumes that everyone is coming to the table, like this sounds bad, but in good faith. Like it's not designed to prevent people from power gaming or mm-hmm. to balance things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, again, I love D&D, but we know the rules are written the way they are so that people can't just like get away with murder, literally or figuratively, when they shouldn't. So things like, I feel fate really sings when everyone shows up to the table, like knowing that, um, you know, we're all here to tell a story and we're going to cooperate with the system because it's going to let us do that in a good way, right? Um, you couldn't do like a, a layer assault in Fate, you know, like <laughs> yeah. fourth edition layer assault. I loved, yeah. <laughs> but like that's not the sort of thing that happens in Fate. Or even like, um, to me, even like a book of stat blocks of monsters in Fate is like, but what if that isn't right for me in my game? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one big thing. And one place where that um, comes through is in approaches in Fate Accelerated. Because we're talking before, you know, about like... Um, if you, if you have a plus three and forceful, if you're good with forceful, you want to do things forcefully all the time. Like that's not a, that's not a problem. Um, as long as you're, you understand that your narrative also has to always has to have you being forceful. And also if you're being forceful, you're not being uh, anything else. You know, you're not being subtle. You're not being, mm. you know, you're not being smart about it or whatever, you know, like it's important for the GM to know, like, well, if you're doing it this way, you're not doing it that way. And then when things go wrong, the way you weren't doing it is why, <laughs> you know, like you can lean on that. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, I think that makes a big difference when, you know, or even because I've played in games where I'm like, I have a, a plus four and flashy. OK, I'm going to be flashy all the time. And that's a challenge. Like, how are you going to do everything <laughs> in an in attention grabbing, flashy way, unnecessarily complicated? You know, like, how are you going to do this every time? And uh, it was fun. <laughs> it wasn't an issue. It was just fun to do. <laughs> so um, it, it does require a certain understanding of like what it is we're, we're doing. I don't think that's necessarily explicated in Fate Accelerated, mm. but in all the philosophizing that 
that happens around fate because there's like a lot. It feels like a philosophy sometimes. Um, that that's something that's come up. Like you know, if you're doing it this way, you're not doing it that way. Um, so I think that's I don't know something I wanted to mention. That's maybe not the most yeah. important thing, but I think it's important for fate accelerated because that makes the game like better <laughs> if, if you're playing with that in mind. Um, Great point. What else was I gonna? Um, oh, and a, another thing, that you, not something you talked about, but something I think is worth noting is the role of dice in fate. If we're gonna compare it to D and D, like you roll your die, or um, well, a lot of games. So you roll your die, you add your number. Did you do the thing? No, you didn't. Okay, done. But in fate, the dice rolling, like your skill rating or your approach rating, is like how effective you are with that thing, and then your difficulty number is like how you know how hard it's going to be, and the dice are kind of like. Uh, like almost like a formality like let's see what random nonsense gets in the way that's the dice and the fate points are you exerting narrative control to contradict that reality right to contradict the randomness thing like that can't be the case i'm the third best swordsman on the continent like so no let's re-roll that like i could not have done that for things must go better for me than that um and i think that's an important note because the game often comes down to like, how committed are you to succeeding at this now? How many fate points do you want to spend or how many resources do you want to use up, you know, on the table? Um, how important is it to you? Because it might not be that important for you to succeed. Now, you don't have to spend fate points every time to try to do it, but if you really, really want to nail it, or is it just enough to succeed a little because you're trying to create an advantage, you want to get that aspect in there for someone else to use or whatever. So I think that is a notable difference, I think, between Fate and a lot of other games. Yeah, and I think it's like, a concept that's hard to grasp when you first encounter it as a D&D player, yeah. if you're a primary D&D yeah. player. Like I've, well, uh, yeah, when I, I was saying when I played Gumshoe the first time, which has a similar concept, uh, you know, you roll a, a single D6 to see how you do, and the target number is not too hard, but then you can spend points to just add to that. And so you can guarantee that your role will be a success. And that concept, you know, when someone explained to me, I'm just like, well, this is bad design, you know? And then I'm playing and I'm going, actually, this is great design because what it really lets me choose when I say no, you know, I'm in this kind of Mission Impossible type situation and I will shoot the vampire and I will succeed because I'm that good. But I can't do that always. But I can do it when I really need to because it's what the story I feel the story should be around who my character is. And, and that it's a very it's a thing to get used to, but it's a really powerful concept. And probably the, the best example I'd give in a D&D format is when you're like, you know, the great diplomat and then you roll a one. Right. And, and but you gave a great in character speech. And sometimes there's those times you just feel like this should succeed. And everybody at the table feels that way. But there's no mechanic in D&D usually to just fix that. But games like Fate have that ability to fix that situation, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, even the, um, that would probably be an overcome action, by the way, maybe, sorry, mm. if, you're, uh, yeah. if you're trying to talk someone into something, right? And another big thing in Fate that has migrated a little bit to D&D is the concept of um, uh, succeeding at a cost. Mm-hmm. It didn't originate with Fate, but it's a thing that I definitely have seen in D&D in one paragraph in the PHP, but um, <laughs> you know, when you, when you do take the overcome action uh, in, in fate, which is like, I'm, I'm trying to jump over a chasm or something or convince a guard or whatever. Um, if you fail, you can just choose to succeed at a cost, like something bad happens, you know, if you at a minor cost or a, or a major cost, but 
you know, like it recognizes that like, well, this would suck if you just couldn't open the door, like you couldn't pick the lock. And now where that's the rest of the game is on the other side of that door. So just you succeed at a cost. You succeed, but as you open the door, you know, there's guards behind it or whatever it is, or your lockpick breaks or, you know, all the many, many things that yeah. we have done. We have kludged together in D&D when it didn't <laughs> ask us to do it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, and the jumping the chasm was the thing that's, that sparked that because like, well, what happens if you fail? You just fall to your death. Like, is that just one roll if you're dead? <laughs> like there's gotta be something else, you know, you succeed, but you, you sprain your ankle on the other side, you know, whatever it is. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, everything in fate is really built around that idea of like, let's like keep that story going and feed, you know, feed stuff in the story, even, even in a fight being taken out in a fight, you know, in a physical fight, even doesn't mean you're dead. Um, it just means you're out of the conflict. Whoever took you out gets to, gets to decide what happened to you. Mm. Um, you know, so there's no worrying about like subdual damage or, yeah. you know, do I, did I say I was going to knock them out or whatever? If you, you're the one who does it. And by the similar token conceding, when you decide like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I have no chance of, su- of succeeding on this. Or even if you're just being strategic about it, you can say, I concede. Here's how I get taken out. You know, you get taken out, but you get to decide how it happens. And then you get paid fate points for it too. So you, you do get something yeah. out of it. That brings us right into one of our comments uh, from Michael Phillips via Mastodon, who says, last week you missed one of my favorite pieces of technology from Fate, which is the conceding mechanic. It's part of why fights don't just have to be the last stress box or hit point. It's a rich source of Fate points if the fight has gone badly for you. So yeah. it's just one more way of controlling the story and getting a mechanical benefit as well by making the story more interesting. Yeah, and you get, you talk about being fate paid uh, fate points. You get a fate point for every consequence you've accrued in the fight. So really, it, it incentivizes you to get really beat up and then give up. I mean, you could give up early on if you wanted to, but that's, you know. But yeah, it really wants you to, like, give everything you had. <laughs> you get beaten up and you're like, fine, I concede. And the GM says, okay, here's a fate point for conceding and three more for all your consequences. You know, and then that's that's a that's a fortune. Four fate points at once. That's that's wild. And, and it gives you the, the ammo you need to do to be awesome later in the game, mm-hmm. you know, which is like what that whole dynamic is about. For sure. Well, we didn't talk last week about campaign and character creation which is another big difference between most D&D campaigns and most fate-based campaigns. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what that campaign and character creation process is like um, in fate-based games as opposed to what you normally see in a D&D campaign? Sure. Um, I should preface this by saying that fate is extremely malleable, as you, you guys know. So there's no, there's no generalization I can make about fake games uh, across the board because uh, even like fake games published by Evil Hat don't all work the same way. Mm-hmm. Like Shadow of the Century doesn't look like Atomic Robo, doesn't work like Spirit of the Century, you know. But generally speaking, um, when you make characters, you come up with your high concept aspect, which you talked about last time about like, what's, what's my log line for this character? What's, you know... Um, What's my, I don't know, thing like a scoundrel with a heart of gold, Han Solo mm-hmm. or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, used to be in Spirit of the Century, you would, you would um, 
everyone have a, a book that they that they start in and then someone else would have a guest role in your book but you're but that's how you get aspects you say like i give myself this aspect for this book and this other person was in my book and they're going to give me this aspect for them so you might have like other players giving you aspects for your character to cement the connections between you. Um, and that, and by book, you sort of mean like there, there was a thing in my backstory, right? There was a, yeah, but it's talking about because it, because it's a game about like twenties pulp adventure. Like it's everyone has their you know, hundred page pulp adventure book series that they're in every character in the mm-hmm. game. So mm-hmm. you talk about your, you know, these previous things that, that, that you shared. Um, so yeah, Typically, there is a process by, you know, you, you go around the table and you talk about, like, I have this aspect and then someone else might say, you know what, that's cool. I think I was there for that. And I'm going to say I have this aspect, too. Um, or someone might might throw in, like, uh, well, what was that person's name? Like, what was that villain's name? Uh, I'm going to be involved with that villain. I'm going to be their son or whatever. You know, they like things just pop up like that and the gm just sits there and goes like okay okay right <laughs> we keep track of all of this <laughs> um so that that's that's often the case and that and then i mean i i guess i've jumped right to character creation but we we skip past the like campaign creation part where you sit down and say like what kind of game do we want to play at all um and then like who are the Who's the, who are the antagonists in this game? What are, what's the struggle about? And what's the central conflict? And what are the issues? What's, what are the, um, you know, uh, impending issues and the long-term issues? Like what's, what's going to be a problem later on? And what's a problem right now? And Core talks about how you can use those two kinds of issues to focus the game on either like, um, you know, if all the issues are impending, then it's about like, let's go change the world right now and like deal with problems on a daily basis and, you know, like just keep busy kind of, it's like episodic sort of, Mm -hmm. but if you have impending issues, then it's more of a long-term problem. You're talking about like Mr. Big is off there somewhere in the shadows that you have to deal with. Um, I know, I feel like this is being very vague, but honestly, there's so much, it's so versatile that it's, it's hard to, to, to pin it down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I love it because it, it, what I I think of it as contrasting it with D and D, right. Where in in D and D the DM goes back into their cave and comes up with a concept and a story and a setting. And they may talk to their players as a session zero, like, Hey, do you guys want to deal with, you know, pirates or do you like jungles or whatever? And you come up with some concept, but, but you kind of show up and then you say, well, you know, we might have session zero to talk through some things, but we're going to go into an intro and you guys, the, the setting will slowly reveal itself to you. Unless I give you a setting document, you know, it's going to play out and you'll learn yeah. things as you go. But fate is, let's build it together and and sitting around the the table folks might say wow you know i'm really wa- loving this andor tv show i kind of want something like that and someone goes yeah you know i'd love something like that but also with this kind of element to it and then what what ends up happening as a result is that everybody is ready for the game before the game begins and 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 aligned towards what the game is going to be in a way that in D&D you know, you could have run many sessions and you might have a couple of players who are still not quite getting into it because they don't know how to make their character fit. But in Fate, you've collaborated on the campaign creation and then created the characters after that. So it it, it all lines up, right? Which is really powerful. Yeah, everyone gets hooked into everything. 
Um, and it certainly everyone at least has the opportunity to get hooked in, in yeah. the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. It might not be everyone's cup of tea to determine setting elements, but like everyone has that opportunity to, yeah. to do it. Yeah. When, when I worked with encoded designs on a game called part-time gods of fate, yes, we have the, you, know, the, you build your neighborhood. And since you are a part-time God, you have to have places of power in your neighborhood that you are drawn to. And it, it was just taking what's right there in, in fate core and the rules, right? Create the uh, thing, create the aspects, create your connections to it, create an NPC that will be part of that. Give that NPC an aspect. What are your connections to, to these people? And what are your connections to each other as, as, as your pantheon, uh, right? Your, your God of pepperoni and, and your goddess of right, sore rats come together to form this this uh this pantheon. I mean, that's that's a natural parent sewer exactly. rats with pepperoni exactly exactly One of the so I, uh, find, I don't know how you guys feel about it but but when i think of D campaigns or actually it works in either way you can think about a D campaign and say what would the movie be like and the answer is you have to change it or you think about a movie and you say how would you make that into a D campaign and and you kind of go well i'd, I'd have to tweak it it can't quite work this way but when i see sort of the way fate works it's like things can work that way much more easily like it it uh it'll because of the way the players are are working towards it and adapting to it building off of it you really can actually see that and so it's it's like i find it much easier to say here's how Andor the tv show would become a fate campaign than i do it would become a D campaign Oh, absolutely. Um, this happened to me with Hero 2. Every time I see a character on TV or a movie, I go like, well, how would I build that character? But certainly in Fate, once you start thinking in those terms, you see like aspects in everything and you, you're like, oh, I see what he did there. Like the whole conversation with Han Solo and Greedo. This is one of mm-hmm. Morgan Ellis's favorite examples of this. The whole conversation is Han setting up, creating advantages, right? You know, like um, he surreptitiously uh, unbuttons, uh, unsnaps his holster, you know, like that's an aspect, like, Mm. you know, blaster ready to go. That's an aspect you put on the scene. Or, you know, he's like, I don't have it with me. And he's looking over this, like Greedo's distracted. Like he's just making aspects as he goes. And then he he invokes them all for free at the end and blasts Greedo out of the movie. (laughs) Um, So yeah, definitely. But uh, but that's what fate is meant to emulate, uh, sort of cinematic stuff like that. But it's also versatile enough that, you know, you can cram just about anything into it. Like it, it, you know, like I said, as long as it's competent, dramatic protagonists leading or a competent, proactive, uh, you know, leading dramatic lives. Like that's, that's every movie (laughs) for the most part. So yeah, it's, it's definitely very cinematic. When you sit down to create a D&D campaign, you know, often you are just, stealing things from the forgotten realms of Greyhawk or whatever your, your favorite thing is. And you're, you're using those sort of standard issues, standard tropes of what the trouble is with fate. You can do so differently. You can do so both with player uh, interaction, but it sort of gives you a framework for setting up that, that trouble in the background and connecting it to real elements of the game that the the characters will interact with immediately or can interact with uh more emphatically than this sort of high 
trouble in the background. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how it helps with storytelling? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm running a Greyhawk game right now in fifth edition. And you mentioning that made me think that like, if it were a fake game, uh, we would have campaign aspects, aspects everywhere, uh, campaign aspects of like, you know, I use his back, you know, and that's because that's an aspect that we can interact with mechanically. Like I can compel that aspect, give the players fate points, say like, look, this thing's going to happen. Um, you know, I know you think you're, you're safe here sneaking around the borders of the Felry Forest, but I use his back and he's not happy about this. And they're, you know, there are uh, his forces here. So here's a fate point, everybody, because now it's a fight that you didn't ask for. Like, I'm not asking you to roll stealth or anything like that. I'm just saying this is happening now and I'm bribing you to make it happen with a fate point. But because I have the aspect there in place, you know, that happens. Now, I'm not obviously in D&D. You could say like, oh, it turns out, well, you know, I was back and you're here in the Felry Forest. So things happen. But I, there's something really it has more teeth to me yeah. when there's a mechanical thing that you can latch yeah. onto. Obviously you can do anything you want when you're running a game, right. but um, it's cool. It's also cool for me to be able to say like, um, uh, you know, like, uh, or, or they're, they're, they're stealthing around or they're scouting or something. And they could also invoke, I use this back to be like, well, we we're on our, we're on high alert because we know I use his back. So we're all extremely aware, you know, so if we're, when we're keeping watch, I'm going to invoke I use his back because I know, you know, mm. like the players can interact with it directly there. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, they can make new campaign aspects or things can change. Let's say oh, I use his back anymore. We deal with him. We can replace that with another aspect, the power vacuum or something, you know, so like it can reflect, there are mechanical bits that yeah. reflect how the narrative changes in a way that, uh you don't necessarily get in every game yeah i really like the the way it works in fate because it ties into that overall concept that everyone's bought into like um i i struggle with gm intrusions in in numenera or cipher system because the gm intrusion is just sort of like i want to do this let me give you some you know xp as a payout for the fact that i'm going to do this to you but Fate ties it into the larger architecture of your campaign or your character. And that's what I find makes it interesting because you, you, you know when you're playing this game that you're buying into that. And the same thing happens in D&D. In D&D, you don't really necessarily, you don't have that same buy-in. So if someone just says, well, I'm going to have a patrol come by, it feels awkward. But it doesn't in Fate. And that, that's really uh, uh, quite impressive how they pull it off. It's, it's well, simply and, done, but it works so effectively. And the GM has a limited number of fate points in per scene to make things like that happen. Um, not for compels necessarily, but anyway, this, this is a whole philosophical point. Now, where, where do the fate points come from? Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, in d and I feel like I should be rolling on a table to figure it out. Like, does that thing happen? You know, I'd like this thing to happen. I, I feel, I don't feel quite right if I just like make it happen all the time necessarily you know like i kind of want to i want the players to see like it just happened like we all can believe in the randomness of this world and everything whereas uh in fate i don't think anyone's i don't have to buy into the randomness of i, I don't feel like i have to buy into that because it's not random i'm making choices yeah. and we all know i am because it's very meta but like you see i have these resources you know these fake points i'm spending to make things happen sometimes um I had something else I was gonna. I had thought about anyway. Well, I can add that the, the one of the things that I think really helps is that in Fate you you have this sort of like higher concept of you know I use his back, but you've also in character creation you, or campaign creation worked collaboratively to decide what the major organizations are, and so you might have like well 
you know, I use bone heart have come back and they're all powerful and dead or yeah. any aspect. Right. And so, so these things create kind of touch points, knowledge points that the characters have and the players have. So they expect things. So if you do things like introduce that patrol, they might wonder which bone heart is that patrol associated with, right? Like there might be these kind of interesting pieces that, that come in because the players know things, which is, the opposite of a D&D campaign where, where you often are, are slowly doling out information and building, but it's all DM controlled versus player controlled. And, and that limits how much the players can, can interact with it and, and buy into it. Yeah. And um, that reminds me too. It's like uh, there's, you know, like spout lore in dungeon world, or is it Barth fourth apocrypha in apocalypse <laughs> world where you can, uh, you know, add things on the fly to the setting. Like you're saying, like, I wonder what patrol they're from. Well, let's make a role. And sometimes, you know, you'll, um, I want to know more about that as part of a creative advantage or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Because if I know about them, that's an advantage for me. It's an aspect. Everything can be an aspect. Um, and sometimes, you know, if the GM has an answer, the GM might tell you the answer. But lots of times in fate, you know, you make that role and the GM says, okay, so who are they? Like, well, so where are they from? What's their deal? And the player says, oh, this. And they go, oh, okay, well, that's the story there. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so that's like on the fly, adding things to the setting, right? It doesn't all have to happen at the beginning or any particular time. You can, um, there are many, many opportunities for that. Um, in, uh, and Atomic Robo, um, which is based on a, a comic book about action scientists going around doing weird action science things. Um, in order to emulate that comic, there's a mechanic called brainstorming. And the way the game works is that the GM runs the game, like plans things out up to a certain point. And there's always a point in a game, uh, in most games, where the players go like, well, what is going on? Like, what is the, what's the deal? Like, what do you think is going? And that's when we stop. Usually it doesn't have to stop. It can be in the middle of another scene, but and we have a brainstorm where the players figure out what's going on by making roles. They like decide like, what evidence do we have about what this is? They bring up certain data points and then someone comes up with a hypothesis about like what is happening. And then that is what's happening if, if they're right about it, right? If they, if they do the role well enough, but that's what's happening. So they're telling the GM like, so here's what's happening in the setting right now. Uh, We've decided this is the deal. And the GM says, okay. And then goes with that after that. So the players like figure out players decide where things are going. Um, in the middle of the adventure, the GM has seeded enough things so that like they're relatively sure mm. where the players are probably going to take this or they have a decent idea. But, you know, that's a chance for the players to just like not just decide on campaign stuff, but the adventure stuff like what's happening right now. Where is this all going? This, um, uh, this reminds but, me of the comment we got from Lou Anders on Mastodon, where he says, I love fate. I usually describe it by saying that in D&D terms, smog is an ancient red dragon and Bilbo is at best a third level rogue. It should be over quickly, but in fate, Bilbo creates advantages by intriguing and provoking smog, then creates the situa- situational aspect, bare patch on left breast, then hands all these boosts over to Bard the Bowman, who creates the aspect, I have a black arrow, that we've literally never heard of before, and they stack them all to one shot the dragon. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, exactly it. Also, a really great uh, example is the fight against Thanos in Infinity War on mm. um, Titan, when it's like Spider-Man says, I'm going to web his, that, that glove thing and pull it off his, his hand. And man says, I'm going to get up on him and tell him to sleep. I'm going to do this. Like, everyone's doing something separate to try to deal with Thanos. 
that's all the making aspects and like trying to, you know, get something to happen. Yeah. And then Star-Lord ruins it, obviously. But he, Star-Lord takes a compel from the GM. <laughs> yeah. so he's like, you cannot possibly let, just let it go like this. He killed Gamora is what he's telling. So I'm going to compel you to screw this all up. And Star-Lord says, fine. Okay, I'll take the big one. Um, but yeah, there are so many examples. Again, like you could go on and on. Mm-hmm. You know, there, Star Wars alone is, is full of examples yeah. of uh, things that look like fate. Yeah. Which is why I've used fate to run Star Wars so much because it just fits <laughs> yeah. right together. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit more about the connections between the characters uh, as opposed to the connections to the, to the world. Fate really digs into this idea of not only are your aspects what you do and what you are good at, but what how you are connected to each other and what that might mean for the story. Could you talk a little about that? Sure. Um, well, like I said, during character creation, you know, there are certain aspects that are part of your character and there are aspects that are part of other things in the game and temporary aspects that come up and go away and stuff. But, but you, if it's an aspect that's a part of your character, obviously it's a very permanent ish part of the game. They can change over time. But um, yeah, during that session zero, which I think is like a, a good thing to do for every game session zero, but in fate, it's absolutely necessary because you have to sit down and come up with this stuff together. You can't make a character separate and then just show up mm-hmm. for game day. And, you know, um, it just doesn't make, you wouldn't have things to write down. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. Um, but uh, it, it really depends on the particular fake game that you're talking about. Like I said, in spirit of the century, the, the gimmick is, you know, you appeared in each other's novels. So you, mm-hmm. you decide how you guest starred, what happened in that. And then, what was the, mm. what aspect you have that reflects that, that interaction there. Um, and uh, other fake games, um, it could be completely like more arbitrary. Like you just give an aspect of the person on your left and it might not, um, they might not have a whole lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you decide like how you, um, uh, how you connect to them without uh, them having a lot of say. It's more like paranoia actually. But, um, but I like, like, like in the core book, it talks about, you know, some, a player that's saying, oh, I got into a bar fight. Yeah. And then the other player goes, well, I helped you get out of that. Right. right? Or, right. You know, and that kind of, yeah. and then that creates these kinds of nice connections and then they can add onto that story. However they see. Yeah. It's um, um, like uh, also like bonds and um, power by the apocalypse or, or like mm-hmm. dungeon world in particular, I always think of because I just played a ton of dungeon world, but um, where, that makes it very explicit, like for each character. Um, but uh, you, you probably, the thing about the aspects is you want something really double-edged. So you want something that can be like go for you and against you. You just want to be able to be compelled so you can get fake points out of it. So yeah, um, uh, that's maybe tangential. I'm not sure why I went down that road, but yeah. Um, but so it so someone who, in, who helps you out of uh, you yeah. know, a bar fight could be uh, you know sucker for someone in trouble. Right. And yeah. That kind yeah. Of or like, you know, like uh, Osric always needs my help or something, you know, that's a mm-hmm. good aspect right. because yeah. um, it could be a positive or negative. Like, yeah, I, I'm here to help you. You always need my help. I'm here, but oh, this guy, I'm going to compel his aspect to make you come help him. Uh-huh. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, any number of ways that, <laughs> that can be used, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fake core gives, gives uh, uh, guidelines on how to do that in character creation. I just, I'm looking at a stack of fake books next to me and there's just like so many ways that this <laughs> happens. Um, in fact, in Atomic Robo, there really aren't any of those mm. kinds of connections, but everyone is an action scientist working for Tesla Dine. So you have a, 
an implicit connection together right, right. Uh, to begin with. Um, but yeah, just like as many versions of fate as there are, there are that many plus two ways of, of doing it. So it's, yeah. it's, well, uh, you know, in most stories, conflict is, is the most interesting thing. And a lot of times in D and D the conflict is only with the DM, only with the DM that the story is telling hmm. uh, that who is telling the story, but with fate, you can create that conflict amongst your party. And not only is it there to role play and to tell a story, but it can have mechanical weight right. that, that you can, that you can use either compel or, you know, to, to spend that fate point, to make that, to use that connection for your own benefit. Yeah. Um, the compel is, oh, oh pardon me. Uh, my voice is changing. The compel is, uh, cannot be overemphasized about like how versatile also that is. Compels can come from the player or they can come from the GM. When it comes from the GM, you can spend a fate point to refuse it. Oftentimes it, it depends on what version you're playing mm -hmm. here again, but to like say, like, I have the narrative cloud to say, no, I'm not going to do that thing that you're suggesting I do. Um, but uh, the compel is a big deal for between players because it's all just about making the decision. Like, can you get this character to make a decision that is not in the best interest of another character? Yeah. And then you don't have to, the mechanical bit, I'll say fate is not great at PVP because mm -hmm. it just comes down to who has more fate points, right? Because all the characters are pretty much equally powered. Um, but uh, yeah, being able to like create conflict in a party is often just about like, who's going to make the choice to do what's ostensibly the wrong thing here. And what uh, I like or... about that is, is in D and D it's almost like, you know, if you want to play Han Solo and just run off from a scene, like you have screwed your party royally, like the, the mechanics of all of it, it, it is too, it's almost like you can't do any conflict because any conflict is problematic and you don't know where to take it. But with fate, with these aspects, it creates a reason why you can disagree and feel you must do things. And, and the system is more flexible. You know, you're not so worried about a TPK or anything like that. So you can, you can handle it and, and it becomes part of the interesting story. And it allows the players to, to have those kinds of stories in a way that D&D, &D, it's pretty hard to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, just the fact that there's no, I've also, I think this is part of it, but there's no separate combat system really mm -hmm. uh, in fate. Like conflicts are conflicts. Uh, no matter what kind of conflict you're having, there's no like, you know, there are the game terms of weapon and armor, but you got a weapon and armor for social conflicts too. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like good reputation mm -hmm. can be your armor in a social conflict. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a that your example about Han Solo taking off and coming back and it reminds me of my one of my favorite stunts from Spirit of the Century back in the day it was called Master of Disguise, where you'd spend a fate point to drop out of the game. Your character would just like vanish. And then you at a future scene, you'd come back as a like a nameless minion in the scene. You'd <laughs> take your mask off and you're like, it's me. And you'd be back. <laughs> and I love that that so much. I made a whole character around that. that my character was never actually in the scene. He was always disguised <laughs> as someone else and always just showing up as a minion. Um, but yeah, that would be very difficult to do mm -hmm. in a lot of games, right? You would feel like I'm not playing if I'm if I'm not here right now. Mm -hmm. um, but like that can be your whole gimmick uh, in, in a, a fake game. Um, and even just, um, um, you can also be, doing something related to what you can split the party and still have them be working it at the same thing uh, because you can be creating advantages over here that creating making aspects that, that benefit the people over here or vice versa, you know, um, even if you're not doing the same 
thing. There's also something in some editions of fate called collateral consequences, hmm. where you kind of take the in a conflict, you take a, what would be damaged to you and you like shove it off onto the narrative instead. Like I'm fine, but now that building's on fire. <laughs> so now it's a problem to solve in the scene now, or, um, uh, you know, I'm fine, but now I use, I use forces are on the march, um, for whatever, even if it's not related, it's just like another narrative thing has come down the pike that we got to yeah. deal with now. It's a little like clocks, you know, mm-hmm. in like, um, Forge in the Dark or PBTA games mm-hmm. where like, you know, certain things happen, then a bad thing's happen. You just make the bad thing happen by, by taking that collateral consequence. And that's another thing that affects, can potentially affect the, the whole setting or, or campaign too. Um, so I know you've got to head off soon, but uh, maybe before you head out, if you could tell us um, what, given that you love Fate so much and, and have so much experience, when you go and play a game like D&D, what do you pull from Fate into your D&D game? How do you approach that? Um, well, I do use inspiration like fate points sometimes. First of all, I tell, I tell my players, you can only ever have one, but you know, I will give you inspiration for any little cool thing you do. And then I want you to spend it right away so I can give it to you again. <laughs> and the, and you're going to feel like you're really getting away with something, but the upshot will be you're doing cool things all the time and getting rewarded for it. So isn't that what we want? Um, but I will, I will use inspiration sometimes to bribe someone like a compel, like, Hey, I'll give you inspiration if you go down there by yourself or, you know, like I'll try to make their lives more complicated by offering them inspiration to it. And like nine times out of 10, it works. Um, another reason I need them to spend inspiration so I can give it to them again. Um, so that's, um, that's definitely a big thing and also succeeding in a cost. Mm. Um, I'm explicit about that, about how, um, you know, you missed by one, but you hit or you, you did it anyway, but here take some damage or you drop this or what, you know, whatever happens, like don't, don't let miss sometimes, you know, missing by one is like a real mm-hmm. bummer when you all, like you were saying before, you all feel like this thing should succeed or this should go well here. Um, and then the dice say that it, it doesn't. And D and D doesn't really give you a resource, uh, a recourse to like change what the dice said at all. Mm-hmm. So that succeeding at a cost is a big deal. Like it really goes a long way um, in, uh, in D and D. Which I love, by the way. I, I yeah. don't want to give the impression that I don't love the idea. I really yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, before we let you run, could you tell us uh, where people can find you on the internet if they want to hear more about you and your exploits? Oh, I don't know. I have any exploits, but um, I'm on uh, <laughs> a Twitter at, at Devlin1, um, D-E-V-L-I-N-1. Um, I'd be on Mastodon, but I haven't really figured it out. I'm confused and scared. I'm 50 years old, and I don't know how to make Mastodon happen. Well, I um, made it work, and I'm 50, so we'll, yeah, I'll, I'll show you. I'll send you're, you're you a message example. later on uh, how yeah, to do you're, it. Yeah, you're my it's example possible. as to how, how it works. So you, you give me hope to carry on. You, you, um, it'll be weird for you because there's very low drama on there, so it's uh, yeah, not okay. a lot of aspects being compelled. It's strange. <laughs> um, just aspects being created. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, you can see I have, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of uh, my work on drive through RPG. If you look up my name, um, a lot of fate stuff on there and uh, on the DM scale too, um, I've written some adventures league adventures and uh, some other books and things I've collaborated on. Um, and uh, I think uh, I, that's it. I'd say Facebook, but I don't think anyone uses Facebook anymore <laughs> for the things that I, I mean, uh-huh. I'm on it, but I'm not, 
yeah. talking to people on it really. But if you're a friend of mine from Facebook, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Obviously we're friends, but um, <laughs> I'm just not taking any new friends on Facebook right now. That's all. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think that's it. Awesome. awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on and we will uh, look forward to talking to you either online or in person in the near future. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for having Bye. me. Sure. All right. Well, there we had Mike Olson talking to us about the ins and outs of fate. And we want to thank him for, for coming on the show to do that. Um, if you would like to get a copy of fate core or any of the other flavors of fate, you can do so directly at evilhat.com. You can also get it on drive through. So check it awesome. out. And thank you so much for listening, everyone out there. Uh, thank you to our patrons who keep things going for us. And we would like to tell you a little bit more about some of our patrons, uh, especially those patrons who are masters of the multiverse. You get a special shout out. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Ma Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Krishna Simone, Say It Again, Joe Tyler, Matias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Uh, so thank you to our listeners. If you like the show, you can consider becoming becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash mastering DD. You could also give us a Apple Podcast review or a review via whatever program application you use to listen to the podcast. And you can subscribe to YouTube if you so choose. Hey Teos, where can people find you? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can reach my YouTube and other efforts. My latest blog is on one of the topics that we talked on the news show, the uh, the uh, Creator Summit. And uh, you can also find me on Mastodon as alphastream at dice.camp, uh, sometimes on Twitter. And what about you, Sean? Where do we hunt you down? Uh, I'm still on Twitter at Sean Merwin, but I'm also at Mastodon at Sean, Mer or Sean Merwin at tabletop.social or social.tabletop. I always get those two confused. <laughs> uh, you could also find the show on Twitter at Mastering D&D and on Mastodon at Dice Camp. Uh, you can join our community via Patreon and leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So Teos, now that we've given all the news and we've faded ourselves out, what are we going to do now? Uh, I'm going to invoke the aspect of basketball success. Mm, I should have commented uh, earlier on your Duke shirt. And good luck in the upcoming <laughs> uh, opening round versus Oral Roberts University. It's that dreaded five versus 12. So we're going to go root for the underdog. We will pray for a victory.